Saturday the 2nd of February 2008. The sun had just set on the south of Canada in Victoria, British Columbia, when a realtor attended what appeared to be a regular home viewing appointment. She walked into the appointments hoping to secure a sale, however, it would be a house viewing that would end in horror. In a case of pure heartbreak for the community of Victoria, let's discuss the case of Lindsay Buziak. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve deep into this case, I'd just like to thank Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. I'm sure you've heard of Magellan TV before, especially on my channel, and it is not without good reason. Magellan TV is my absolute go-to for all of my documentary needs. With a wide range of documentaries from space, nature to true crime, and with 4K at no extra cost, it's the perfect place to wind down after a long day while learning something new. Magellan TV actually adds between 15 to 20 hours of brand new content every single week, so if you're worried about running out of true crime content to watch, worry no more. I've just watched Finding Lee, A Tangled Web, which is a documentary about the kidnapping of Lee Matthews, who was abducted from the parking lot at her college. Shortly after the kidnapping, a ransom demand of 50,000 ran, over 2,000 pounds, was made to Lee's father, who scraped together and paid the money at the agreed place. He was able to hold a short telephone conversation with her after that, but it was their last communication. In the documentary, we piece together the final tragic hours of a girl whose life ended far too soon. Be sure to use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments and use your one month free trial to go watch Finding Lee, A Tangled Web. And once you've finished it, dive deep into Magellan TV's extensive true crime collection. As I've said before, new documentaries like Finding Lee, A Tangled Web are added to Magellan TV weekly, so do not sleep on this offer. And they currently have a holiday promotion where if you buy a gift card for a annual subscription, you get a second gift card for free for an annual subscription. So that is the perfect thing if you're trying to think of a Christmas present or just a gift for a loved one this holiday season. Grab that using the link below. And thank you to Magellan TV for constantly supporting this channel and making content like this video possible. Now, back to the case. Victoria, British Columbia, a beautiful place known as the City of Gardens due to their annual flower count dating back to 1970 and labeled the most romantic city in Canada. Lindsay Elizabeth Buziak was born on Wednesday the 2nd of November 1983 in Victoria, Columbia to her parents Jeff and Evelyn Buziak. She had one sister, who was called Sarah, and altogether they formed a happy family of four. Lindsay was described by her family and friends as being ambitious and having a promising future. She was the kind of person to have an infectious smile and laugh and a zest for life. A life that would be violently snatched from her. 
Earlier in the day, on Saturday the 2nd of February 2008, Lindsay had gone out for lunch with her boyfriend at the time, who was called Jason Zalo. And this lunch date had ended at 4.24pm. Jason and Lindsay had been in a relationship together for about a year, and had actually lived together in a property owned by Jason's mother, Shirley. The couple had initially lived in Jason's mother's vacation home at a nearby lake, but they had moved to a property closer to central Victoria in order to be closer to the place that they worked. According to an article on this case on chillingcrimes.com, quote, They seemed happy together. But according to Jeff, who was Lindsay's dad, Lindsay had some reservations about the relationship. She found Jason was too possessive and controlling at times. That was not the sort of man Lindsay wanted. She was a free spirit and extremely ambitious and determined. They both left the restaurants in their own cars at 4.24pm, as Lindsay had a house viewing appointment at 5.30pm. Jason, following the lunch, went directly to SHC, which is his place of work, to sign some papers to finalise a house sale that he was closing on. He was also a realtor or worked in the real estate field, in that field. And he arrived at his place of work at 4.29pm. It's presumed that in the time between leaving the lunch date and the time of the house viewing, Lindsay returned back to her home to change clothes in preparation for the viewing. The viewing had been arranged a few days earlier, on the 31st of January 2008, when a woman had contacted Lindsay about a property. Lindsay had actually told her father about this client and the call that she had received, as her father had been a realtor in Calgary, though Lindsay had expressed to her father that she felt something to be off about the call she had received, as it had been made to her personal cell phone number, and not to her work phone or office phone, as an usual inquiry would be received on. The woman who had phoned Lindsay had told her that another one of Lindsay's clients had actually given her the cell phone number, but that still didn't settle this gut feeling that she had. Despite this, Lindsay went ahead and agreed with the viewing. You can see in this image the notes that Lindsay had made during the call, and the specification that the client was looking for. The blacked out part is just the phone number that Lindsay had written down. The client that Lindsay had booked to meet had stated beforehand that they'd be coming alone to the appointment, though at 5.30pm, a Caucasian couple arrived at the property, greeting Lindsay by the trunk of her car. A real estate lockbox which contained papers about the property and, I presume, the keys to the property or other valuable information, was located in the trunk of Lindsay's car, and it shows that it had been accessed at 5.29pm. Just before Lindsay had met with the clients, she received a text from Jason that read, quote, I'll come and meet you, and I'll be 10 to 15 minutes or so. To which Lindsay replied by saying, Okay, I'll see you in a bit. I gotta go. The Mexicans are here. The Mexicans being a shorthand name for the clients she was set to meet. Lindsay had given this client this nickname as the woman who had phoned her up had a very strong Mexican accent. The couple were described as a six-foot-tall, dark-haired man and a blonde woman, both of whom appear to have been in their mid-30s to mid-40s. It's also, they, they were also described as being Caucasian or Mexican in other reports. Whatever the truth is there is unclear because there are some conflicting reports there. But what we do know is the woman was of particular note to the neighbours of the property they were viewing as she had been wearing a rather unique dress with large black, red and white lines. I'll put a picture of the dress on screen. 
The neighbours later stated that the body language from the initial meeting between Lindsay and the couple indicated that they hadn't met each other before or prior to this house viewing. This sighting of Lindsay by the neighbours would, unbeknownst to her, be the last time that she would be seen alive as she entered the house with the couple for the viewing. 1702 de Sosa was a home valued at just under 1 million Canadian dollars. It boasted four bedrooms and three bathrooms, with a total lot size of 6,458 square feet and a livable area of 2,957 square feet. At about 5.30pm, shortly after Jason had texted Lindsay saying he'd be with her in 10 to 15 minutes, Jason and his work colleague left the SHC building together and got into Jason's car to drive to the property where Lindsay had the viewing. At 5.38pm, Jason sent Lindsay a text that read, quote, just a couple of minutes away. That text would never be opened. At around 5.40pm, Lindsay's boyfriend Jason pulled up to the property that Lindsay had been showing to her clients with a colleague of his, as we know, and when Jason peered through the window in the front door, he claimed to have seen a figure, though he was unable to make out any more details about this figure, besides the fact that it appeared to be a male with their back to the door. Jason didn't really think much about what he had seen and returned to his car where he waited for a further 10 minutes before deciding to drive back out to Torquay Drive. He then texted Lindsay to ask if she was okay but didn't receive a response. Jason waited a further 20 minutes before getting out of his car and walking up the drive to the property that Lindsay had been showing to her clients. When he arrived at the front door, he tried the handle, only to find the door to be locked. Peering through the windows in the door though, he could see Lindsay's shoes in the foyer of the property, which indicated that Lindsay was still inside. Jason knocked on the front door and waited for a few moments, yet there was still no response. And so at 6.05pm, worried sick for the safety of his girlfriend, Jason phoned the emergency services, and asked for the police. Meanwhile, Jason's colleague, who had stayed with him during all of this, decided to see if he could find another way into the property. The colleague quickly found a gap in the fence that led to the back garden, and so he made his way through the gap and to the rear of the property, before entering the house through an unlocked back door, and walking through the house and unlocking the front door to let Jason in. As soon as the front door opened, Jason hung up the phone to the 911 operator and entered the house. He immediately headed up the staircase and to the master bedroom of the property, where he found a scene from his darkest nightmares. Lindsay was laying on the floor of the master bedroom in a pool of her own blood. Jason's colleague then phoned 911 at 6.11pm to report what they had found, though the authorities had already been en route. The emergency services quickly arrived on scene, and sadly, Lindsay Buziak was declared dead on arrival. Investigators and forensics teams were quick to secure the crime scene in the hopes of finding any clues as to who had killed such a promising realtor. It was quickly determined that Lindsay had not been sexually assaulted or robbed prior to her death, so a sexually driven motive was quickly ruled out. After the detectives combed through the crime scene, it was hypothesised that the murder had been conducted by experienced or even professional hitmen due to the complete lack of DNA and fingerprints. Authorities believed that Lindsay had been killed within a three minute window 
and they based this time frame on the last phone call that she had made. The last phone call that she had made was to a friend that she hadn't spoken to for a while, though it appeared that this phone call had actually been accidental and had been dialed from her pocket as she was being killed. The official cause of death for Lindsay within this case was determined to have been death as a result of severe blood loss due to 40 different stab wounds that she had sustained, including mutilated breasts and a slit throat. The first people to be investigated within this case were naturally Jason Zalo, Lindsay's boyfriend, and his work colleague, who we'll call Mark, for the purposes of identity protection. After Lindsay's body had been discovered, both Jason and Mark had been separated by the authorities and individually taken to the police station to undergo questioning. Jason and Mark were immediate suspects in the investigation, and with hardly any other evidence to go on, the detectives were hoping the case would be straightforward. There were a lot of questions when it came to Jason and Mark. For example, how did Jason know to go straight up the staircase to the master, master bedroom? Why did he not go throughout the rest of the house looking for um, Lindsay? How did, she, how did he know that she was up there? There's lots of strange little things that the police were questioning them on. Though, after reviewing traffic footage of the local area and cross-referencing the timestamps from the footage to the estimated time of death, it was determined that Jason and Mark could not have killed Lindsay, and so they were both dropped and cleared as suspects in this case. It's important to note that Jason has been interviewed many times since Lindsay's murder, and has been very cooperative with authorities. He has also undergone a polygraph examination, which he passed, though, as you may know, Polygraph examinations are not reliable in any way, shape, or form. There's a reason that they're inadmissible in the court of law. It's a bullshit technique that the police and investigators and interrogators use to try and pressure someone into coming forward with information or even a confession. It's not based in actual any science whatsoever. Lindsay's ex-boyfriend, Matt McDuff, was also brought in for questioning in connection to this case due to suspicion from the authorities and from Lindsay's mother, though nothing actually came of this and he was cleared of any involvement. It's further interesting to note that Lindsay's friends had claims that she had been planning on breaking up with Jason for a short period prior to her murder, though when Jason was questioned about this, he completely denied it. Authorities threw themselves into the investigation, determined to find out who had been responsible for Lindsay's death. They started with the phone number that had been used by the clients Lindsay had met with to contact her, the phone that had phoned her personal phone number. Investigators quickly discovered the number to have been registered to a phone bought in November of 2007, a burner phone, though the phone hadn't actually been switched on and activated until January of the next year in 2008. This phone had only ever been used to call Lindsay and nobody else. Further investigations revealed that the owner of the phone had placed the calls from Vancouver, though this lead quickly led to a dead end as the name that had been used to register the phone, Paulo Rodriguez, is a fake name and didn't belong to a real person. With no more leads to go on, no forensic evidence, no suspects, the investigators were at a loss. And by the time the one-year anniversary had come around, there were still five investigators working tirelessly on Lindsay's case. They had conducted over a thousand interviews, followed almost 700 anonymous tips, and served 30 warrants, all to no avail. 
Their last hope was an artist's sketch of the female suspects that had been seen by the neighbours, the eyewitnesses, going into the house for the viewing with Lindsay. But sadly, despite their best efforts in analysing this sketch and putting it out in the public, no new solid leads has come of it. Jeff Buziak, Lindsay's dad, has since spoken publicly and directly to the killer in a statement saying, quote, I'd like to say to you, if you have one ounce of humanity and decency in your being, come and see me. Take responsibility for your actions. Quit being a coward and a worm. Two years after Lindsay's murder, two years of investigating and turning up no real suspects, Inspector McCall, who worked on the case, said, quote, Having had this on our plate for more than two years, we had plenty of time to develop theories, look at them closely, and think outside the box. Inspector McCall then went on to confirm that Lindsay had been entirely innocent in her murder, and that the killing had been a targeted killing from a person who held extreme rage towards her. In their time investigating her murder, Sanic police have stated that they have three or four working theories in the case, even going as far as to claim that one of the first people to enter the property following Lindsay's death could very well have been the person responsible for it. In 2010, the Greater Victoria Real Estate Board and the Canada Real Estate Association, or the CREA, banded together to provide a 100,000 Canadian dollar reward to anyone who could provide evidence which would lead authorities to the killer of Lindsay Buziak or information about the name Paulo Rodriguez. It was open for six months with the intent of keeping the public eye on the murder case, but no solid leads came of it. On the 6th of August 2017, at 4.12pm, an anonymous user who went by the name of Ross Addick posted on lindsaybuziakmurder.com, a website set up by Lindsay's dad to help find justice and to raise public awareness, and this comment reads, quote, I killed Lindsay, and stupid cops will never prove it, so you all got nothing. Ask Jay-Z and Sandy Del Caza. They know. Vid and Medardo involved too. No one gives a shit anymore, anyhow, except her crybaby dad. Even her fakie girlfriends have washed it away. Typical loser chicks. Sanic cops dropped it because they can't solve shit and were told to drop it. Chief has been owned for years. He had to obey, so he cuts the phony investigation. It's done. Go home, losers. Forget about her. The street always rules. Bitches die every day. This comment was met with immediate shock and horror from other people who frequented the comment section on the website. Quote, Looks like we have an admission here. Time to find this POS by IP, Addy. Meaning, find them by their IP address. Best look over your shoulder now, Ross. Or whatever your computer tells me your name is, your ass is grass. Another comment reads, quote, Would you be Ross Adicott? Bodybuilder, lives in Victoria, and is in love with himself. Ross Adicott, the person who that comment accused of leaving this comment, actually rebuted the allegations that he had left the comment with a statement on his Facebook page, which read, quote, To all my friends on Facebook, this is what I have to say about the Lindsay statement. Are you fucking kidding me? Why would I do such a foolish thing? I'm trying to get the IP address to find out where it really came from. Doesn't even sound like me, and I gave the cops a chance to talk to me, and they wouldn't have anything to do with it. So you've been had. Lindsay was my girlfriend's friend at the time of her death. All I remember, she was a sweet girl with a good sense of humour. What was the motive? There is none, so that's all I have to say about this matter. 
Who really wrote it is probably the person who manages the site, trying in some desperate way to generate a lead. And by the way, I'm doing quite well. I've saved many lives this year on the streets, and I protect the weak that may not have the strength or street smarts to take care of themselves. I am a predator's worst nightmare. So can you ask yourself, have you done the world any good in your life? And I can confidently say yes. Don't believe everything you read on the net, you bunch of dumb asses. It wasn't until the 9th of August, three days after the comment had been posted, that Jeff Buziak publicly responded by saying, quote, I have forwarded this confession to Sanic Police. It makes me sick to think Sanic Police aren't investigating this, but it wouldn't surprise me. They are still trying to get organised. They do not inform me what they are doing. This needs to be taken seriously and investigated now. It's unclear whether any leads actually stemmed from this comment, or whether it was just a troll account. In 2019, journalists requested that the authorities release information that had been withheld from public knowledge over the years. And this request was actually accepted by the police force, and it uncovered the true depth that the police department had gone to in order to try to solve this case. The Sanic police had sent warrants to large social media companies and a tracking warrant to Lindsay's mobile phone service provider in order to piece together what exactly had happened to her. And this revealed something quite interesting. As we know, a few days before the viewing, Lindsay had received the call from the woman who wanted to book a house viewing, and she had described this client to her boyfriend, Jason Zalo, as having a strong Mexican or Spanish accent, asking for a house in Victoria with a budget of a million dollars. Lindsay had actually expressed concerns to Jason about this viewing, but he had pressed her to take the showing and take the client on as it would yield a high commission sale and more money for her. Now, Jason offered to park outside of the property during the viewing in order to make her feel safer. And as we know, Jason did wait outside the property soon after the viewing had begun. Further investigations into Lindsay's social media revealed irregular online activity and deleted messages from her profiles in the days leading up to her murder. Going through her Facebook accounts, Sanic police realized that there had been no messages at all from the over 700 friends that Lindsay had on the social media platform, which was something that had been extremely out of the ordinary for Lindsay as she had used Facebook on a daily basis. After meticulously sorting through her friends list, detectives quickly realized that she had been acquainted with several criminals. These criminals were described as being violent people and as being involved in the illegal drug trade and distribution markets. Although the names of these criminals have not been released to the general public, the authorities hypothesized that these people could potentially have played a part in Lindsay's untimely death. In 2006, two years before her death, Lindsay had told her father, Jeff, that she had seen something that she shouldn't have. She had never told Jeff what it was that she had seen, but she did bring it back up again in December of 2007. Lindsay's dad claims that he's unsure whether she had been talking about the same incidents that she had mentioned to him the year prior, or an entirely new incident when she brought it back up again. Now, a drug bust operation called Operation High Noon was started by the Sanic authorities at approximately the same time that the burner cell phone that had been used to contact Lindsay about the house viewing had been purchased. Operation High Noon had been triggered by a then unknown female informant who had sent in an anonymous tip to the Calgary police in November 2007. Since Lindsay's murder, there has been speculation that it had been her best friend, Rianne, who had worked as a receptionist at the same real estate agency that Lindsay had worked at. And the hypothesis was that Rianne had been the anonymous informant. 
though it has never been proven as the Sanic Police Department has kept the identity of the informant hidden. It is important to note that Shirley Zalo, the manager of Remax, which is the estate agency where Lindsay worked, and remember Shirley is the mother of Lindsay's boyfriend, Jason, and she also had access to the real estate files and could have easily given Lindsay the address to the DeSosa house to set her up for the killing. Some theorized that the clients that Lindsay had met with had been hired murderers. Rianne, Lindsay's best friend, claims that she had quit her job after Lindsay's death due to the facts that the Zalos scared her. And before Rianne had heard how she had died, she already knew that the Zalos had killed Lindsay. A lot of people have suggested that Jason and his mum Shirley, for reasons I'm not quite sure on, but could potentially be connected to illegal drug trade, together organized a hit on Lindsay. Though that theory is just a theory and is not fact at all. At the time of Lindsay's death, Rianne had been dating a man by the name of Vid Acevedo. And Vid was known for dabbling in drug-related crime alongside the Del Calcazas, Francos, and Leopoldo Rojo Beltran. Now, just cast your minds back real quick to the anonymous comment that was left on the uh, Lindsay website. That comment did mention somebody called Vid. Not sure if there's a connection there, but that's important to point out. Rianne has stated that Shirley Zalo had told her that Lindsay had been the informant that had tipped off the Sanic Police Department about the drug trade, assuming that Rianne would relay this information to her boyfriend, Vid. This all did give Vid motive for the killing. He would have hated Lindsay for being the informant, and as the informant, she would have caused him to lose approximately 8 million Canadian dollars in street value to the Operation High Noon Drugs Bust. So the theory is the Zalos are all connected to this criminal drug underworld, and Lindsay informed the police about it, and she got killed because of it. But that's just a theory and not fact. I must reiterate that that is not fact, it's just a theory. Now it is important to note that within the criminal underworld, it's common practice to purchase burner phones in bulk and then use them at a later date. A criminal by the name of Ericsson was denied bail on the 1st of February 2008, and Ericsson had actually been friends with Lindsay. Ericsson was denied bail the day before Lindsay was murdered. There are a multitude of theories as to what exactly the thing that Lindsay shouldn't have seen had been, including the theory that it had been an incriminating eyewitness accounts which had prevented Ericsson's bail. Though authorities have since come forward publicly and stated that Lindsay had not been an informant in his case. A man called Leopoldo Rojo Beltran was the prime suspect for Lindsay's murder for a brief period of time. Leopoldo was a Mexican citizen who had ties to Calgary, a place that Lindsay frequented where the drug bust happened and the same place where her dad worked, and Leopoldo had lived there for a period of time. Leopoldo also being the same person connected to Rianne's boyfriend, Vid. And I know what you're thinking, it's such a spider web of connections, and I apologize for that, I'm trying to explain it in the simplest way possible. Now, he was thought to have been the male suspect that had gone into 1702 De Sosa Place, the house where Lindsay would be murdered, with the unknown woman to kill her. A journalist by the name of Xander Sherman wrote about police files detailing knowledge about the person who had purchased the burner phone used to contact Lindsay, but that information has never been released to the public. It's speculated that this information was never released to the public due to the fact that Leopoldo was a Mexican citizen, meaning the Sanic Police nor any other Canadian authorities they didn't have the jurisdiction over him to bring him back to Canada, 
Though it is important to note that a treaty of extradition between the government of Canada and the government of the United Mexican States does exist, but the process is extremely lengthy, complicated, and not guaranteed. Further, if Leopoldo had in fact been the one who had purchased the burner phone, there was still not nearly enough evidence to charge him with the murder of Lindsay Buziak, let alone file an extradition. The case of Lindsay Buziak's murder has gone unsolved for almost 13 years, despite her family and friends' best efforts to keep the memory of her and her case alive. Jeff Buziak holds a march in Lindsay's memory every year on the anniversary of her death in the hopes of keeping the case in the public eye and in an effort to urge the authorities to continue working her case. Jeff has stated that he no longer wants closure and that he has come to terms with Lindsay's passing a long time ago. He just wants justice to come to her killers. Since her murder, Jeff has thrown himself into keeping the memory of Lindsay alive, appearing on several TV shows such as Dr. Phil, Dateline and countless podcasts. We can only hope that justice is found soon for Lindsay and that her family and friends can move forward with her loving memory in their minds. If you have any information, no matter how big or small, that could aid in the investigation into Lindsay's murder, please go to lindsaybuziakmurder.com or email jeffbuziak at hotmail.com or alternatively contact Crime Stoppers. A Change.org petition has also been launched in an attempt to have Lindsay's case handed over to a different agency. You can find a link to the petition in the description down below. And that's everything that I have for you in this case. Make sure you subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. A special thank you once again to Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to take advantage of their limited holiday promotion using the links below. Best not even dirty. Grrr! It's never sea bass, I'm just gonna end it. Oh, it's crazy. I'm ending things. Grrr! My fucking villager just died. I now also stream on Twitch, so if you want to join me playing games like Animal Crossing, Stardew Valley, or even deep diving into true crime cases or mystery rabbit holes, head on over to twitch.tv forward slash joshmiles and join me. I should be live when this video is published, so join me in discussing the case over on my Twitch channel. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. A special thank you to all of my Patreon members for helping keep this channel afloat, but especially thank you to my lead investigators for all of your support. If you'd like to support this channel for less than $5 a month, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash it's Joshua Miles. For less than $5 a month, you'll get early access to videos and access to scripts and also polls on cases. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice and support. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.